They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison. I'm Louis Bertel, and this is the podcast that answers the question: Are they still talking? The answer may surprise you. Some people are saying they're still talking. I know. I mean, the rumors are nasty, but <laughs> lo and behold. By the way, did you know that I am living in fucking hell right now? Normally, I would not go into a personal matter right now. But I have so fucked up, so legendarily, that I'm going to bring it up. And what happened is, I was staying in Palm Springs with my friends Brent and Ryan. Hi, guys. I parked outside their house, in the, t- spent the night, came back outside. My car is gone. I learned it is towed because my registration is not updated. I find the car eventually, and I can't get it out because there's no DMV open, so I can't pay for the registration. So they towed me purposely on a day for a stupid infraction where I can't get it out. So now I am back in L.A. where my all my audio equipment is for this podcast. I'm doing the podcast here and my car is in Palm Springs. So I am a fucking mess right now. I love the um, scam of the Palm Springs um, police. Yes, I guess. This, uh, this is specific to Cathedral City, which is adjacent okay. to Palm Springs. But just as, you know desert colored and uh you know weird casinos are everywhere you know what i also went through hell this weekend in that um my phone was stolen by the way was this in west hollywood yes there is a phone stealing epidemic and when i tell you this was not stolen at a bar by the way oh Uh, this was stolen uh, my friend, no, well, my friend Drew and I left the bar, and in the walking out of the bar, like in the street, um, our phones were swiped within seconds. What? That's so seventies paranoid thriller, which we'll get into with Francis Ford Coppola discussion today. But no, there's a huge epidemic in West Hollywood where I think it's largely women. I'm not sure, but people will come into these to pack gay bars, women. and they have a huge bag, and they just keep. Uh, taking iPhones and running out with them. One recently, I walked into a bar and a woman just got kicked out for having them. But it is serious and ongoing, and it is borderline dangerous to bring technology to a bar. Uh, I think it's mostly also like targeted within the within gay bars because not it's not just West Hollywood. It is also um, other parties like um, Rhonda, if you're familiar with that, um, and you know, other parties that have happened throughout the city. I think that people just the swiping phones. I, you know, I sort of appreciate the straight scammer take that gays are stupid and irresponsible. Like that's a new, <laughs> that's a new version of malice towards us, which is exciting because we've rarely been the stupid ones. So yeah. Well, and also snatching them from, you know, women in the bars too. Oh, wow. 
okay. Yeah, I have lady that. on lady a couple crime. friends. I have a couple friends who like even without even with you know like like unzip their tiny um, purse that they have with them and like reached in. It's sort of it's giving weird. Yeah, and I hope that all these scammers talk like inventing Anna. Where there's a manufactured Bjork they accent. I absolutely don't. I they absolutely don't. I feel like it's just some like matter of fact business. You know, they have you have phones piled up uh, in different places. My phone's like somewhere on the east side. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Just and like you could press the button um, to like make a sound, but I don't think it. None of it matters. Okay. I will. Well. I will point out if you have an iPhone. Um, Apple Care does not include theft insurance. By the way, you oh. have to add theft insurance separately, and it's like $4 more a month. So if you're listening, get theft insurance on your iPhone so that you don't have to shell out the money to get a new iPhone. I hope everybody is wiser now. I hope our bitterness has really informed your day. <laughs> Uh, this is like the the iPhone swindler yes, case right. going on. All right. Well, as you mentioned before, we are going to dive into the um, empire of Francis Ford Coppola today um, off of a recent GQ profile and the upcoming 50th anniversary of The Godfather. Yes. Uh, we are also going to talk about um, Pam and Tommy. The Hulu series, but also the entire concept of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee as a couple. I, I remember they would light up the VMAs. Tommy would wear that trench coat and Pam would have her porny barrel curls and you'd get excited. <laughs> and I am going to chat with author Marlon James about his new book, Moonwitch Spider King which is out now. It's a African fantasy epic. And uh, I have a lot of questions for him. Uh, mostly, why are his books so long? Would you say your favorite African fantasy epic is the Wildest Dreams video by Taylor Swift? And now let's start our episode. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more people. <laughs> We have brand new Keep It merch in the Cricket store. So check out our definitive Leo T, which you know I'll be wearing. Our We're All DJs Now AirPod case and more. Shop the new arrivals now at crooked.com slash store. A gift from the depths of the 90s. Hulu's Pam and Tommy has arrived from the director of I, Tanya. A film which I did not love. Me neither. Yeah. We, we, that's famously documented on Keep It. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've gone into it. Look it up. Uh, the series tracks the fallout from the release of the first celebrity sex tape. Uh, and also, it's not about the most famous Pam and Tommy to me, which are characters on the sitcom Martin. Oh, that's true. Also, we had Tachina Arnold on this show one time. Look it up. What if this show just became me yelling at you to look up old episodes instead of actually (laughs) (laughs) giving current opinions on things? Martin's so good. Anyway, we can get another another time. This show 
is this show is weird. I, I do want to say that I find it entertaining. I can sit I through do. this show. I find it entertaining. I like the performances. I think uh, uh, Sebastian Stan is great as uh, Tommy Lee, who is not like neutered to be likable in any way. Like he starts off the show and you immediately think, okay, this guy can kill somebody. Uh, so I was happy with that. However, my beef with this, and I'm sorry I said beef. It felt, it felt crazy coming out of my mouth. It's been said. Here we go. Lily James, while she looks amazing as Pamela Anderson, and while her while the acting is credible, the Pamela Anderson I know, not that I know her, is really marked by a deadpan humor, and I feel she is playing her a lot like a Marilyn Monroe type, and she is not a Marilyn Monroe type. Okay, I also don't love the depiction of Pamela in this. Yeah. And maybe it's because Pamela refused to be involved, but I feel like this series thinks of Pamela in the, you know, VMA appearances, you know, where she's, you know, kooky and, you know, wearing like a big hat and, you know, like giggling alongside Tommy Lee, um, as opposed to the Pamela Anderson that I fucking watched on like, Baywatch, or 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 like on Howard Stern, or like the one who would like was at the celebrity roast. Like Pamela Anderson is somebody you would want on a talk show because she, when the audience is catcalling her or like yelling "ow" or whatever, she would usually respond with some "all right, knock it off." You know, like <laughs> she she's actually funny. Yeah, I think, very I think funny. She has a great sense of humor, and the first episode where it dies into their romance, like really just sort of like portrays her as this. Dits. She uh, as a bimbo, like no personality. Yeah. But I like crazy bad boys. Isn't that insane? I really need to give them up. Oh look, there's another one. I'm going for it. <laughs> and there's no sort of acknowledgement that this woman was more famous than Tommy Lee. At oh, the time. definitely. They, they like like she she's globally famous. Like thanks to Baywatch. And you get that when they get married and they get back to LA, like the paparazzi are there and he's like, oh my God, you're famous. And she's like, we're famous. Like I feel like that ties into the Pamela that I want to see. Like a uh, Pamela Anderson marrying Tommy Lee after um just knowing him like a sh short amount of time like she's making a conscious decision to do this and take her life in that direction and i don't think the show really ever zeroes in on her motivations yeah right and obviously in recent years my understanding of pamela anderson has changed because she also in a whirlwind married uh, in a whirlwind marriage married john peters who is depicted of course in the film licorice pizza by bradley cooper and was one time married to my beloved Leslie Ann Warren. Uh, and then John Peters, after that engagement, basically threw up his hands and said, I don't know what the fuck just happened to me. And she was also the person who was visiting Julian Assange wherever he was, correct? Yes. So she's been through many an iteration since this. But Pamela Anderson, I, I just think, has way more to her. She's, she's more interesting than this show wants you to believe she is. It, it just feels like the whoever wrote this didn't even take the time to look up who she was yeah and and it's it's interesting to sort of like reclaim you know a figure like this um you know in in the current i guess pop culture sphere because you know like what do we do with a 
Pamela Anderson type, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, the, the one doesn't really exist now. I, do, Except, I mean, like, even Megan Fox, who almost feels like Pamela Anderson-esque, like, has more personal agency thanks to social media and sort of the cult love that's come back around for um, Jennifer's body and all of us sort of hating... Um, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Uh, but, you know, like, she... like. You would never portray like Megan Fox like as like a ditz now, right? Right. Do you know what bothers me? It comes up all the time. This is this was more common like ten years ago, but people would say things like, "Oh, you know, those guys are the kind of people who think Megan Fox is a funny woman," and they say that der- derisively. When the fact is, Megan Fox is funny. No, you got it wrong. Stop, stop playing down the fact that Megan Fox is. Uh, rad and strange and droll uh even though it seems like she's a jessica rabbit type so those two things don't really go together but anyway moving back to pamela anderson tommy lee you know what i had never really thought about like i i obviously the sex tape is super famous i certainly remember in the late 90s typing in whatever pam anderson and hoping just images would appear and this was an era that was pre-google image search if i'm not mistaken uh but I did, never put it together that it's extremely credible that this tape was stolen from them. Like they're famous people, mm-hmm. so people are walking in and out of their house all the time. This is exactly this is what the the show portrays anyway, and that actually makes sense. I I don't know. I, ever since like the tape came out, and you'd hear like, oh well, they probably sold it themselves. That is extremely unlikely, and that would probably get out. Yeah. Um. The, them also being the prototype for the celebrity sex tape, it makes sense that theirs was stolen and why other celebrity sex tapes that were leaked were leaked by celebrities. Mm-hmm. You know, because they saw sort of what this did, at least to Tommy Lee's career. Yeah, right, right, right. And of course, he's a wonderful musician. Songs you want at your wedding. My God. <laughs> Motley Crue sucks. <laughs> Didn't we have Ben Folds on one time? He goes, late late 80s was the absolute worst time for music. And I believe I put up a fight and it said something about the mid-2000s. But he may have been on to something. Because it sure was men like caterwauling about women on poles. <laughs> and listen, I am a self-described Chuck Klosterman fan. And he loves writing about like sort of 80s hair metal and shit. But like Motley Crue is bad. It's just, it's, 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 I, I, first of all, I didn't even remember most of the songs when I went to look up like what actual fucking Motley Crue songs were. Uh, and then when I re listened to them, I was like, this is abs, ab, ab, absolutely not, you know, like, and I love, you know, like Bon Jovi's sort of like hair metal era. I love, um, Van Halen. I love Kiss. Uh, I can get in. I can get in the fucking white snake, you know. But I'm like Motley Crue. I think it's just objectively bad. Well, also, and I think I emphasized this point before. The thing with hair metal is there were just too many of those bands. If there were four, it would have been fine. But unfortunately, there were six hundred thousand, and they all had names like Twisterella, and you were stressed mm-hmm. out by their quote unquote androgyny that looked shitty. Uh, no. And you're supposed or like to find the, them, or like a shout at the devil. It's like, ooh, we're bad boys. Like right. maybe we're maybe we're dipping into Satanism. Yeah, uh, great. Thank you for that. What is this Christianity? Like, <laughs> whose idea of bad is that anyway? Um, 
Anyway, horrible music. But what my, now, uh, Tommy Lee has become sort of like a surprise lib on Twitter. I don't think much about that. What I do think about is his episode of Cribs, which is sort of hinted mm. at in this show because they're putting up sex slings in his house. And those are, I, I believe, on display in his episode of Cribs. But the thing I remember is that he had a Starbucks installed in his house. And I remember thinking, can't you just go to Starbucks? Do you really want it in your house? Does that mean you make the coffee? Because that's the whole fun of Starbucks. Somebody else is making the coffee. Like, you don't have to make the coffee. So, and you have an assistant, right? So your assistant would probably just go and pick up the coffee. It felt concerning to me. (laughs) How far away from Starbucks (laughs) does he live? (laughs) Maybe there weren't that many by him. Wow. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, he's in LA. So there are like seven on his block, I'm sure. The series also does sort of what we talked about with Inventing Anna, right? You know, it's like, I feel like every remake of like a scandal or something that comes out now has to find an interesting way totally. to it. Just and like I, Tanya, right? Now it's a documentary and you'll see that she was wronged in certain ways and, and kind of rad in other ways, even though she did break her knee. Like, th- thank you for your rad for the blacklist only take. <laughs> and listen, we both love Seth Rogen. Like he's fantastic. Seems like but a doll. The um intro to this being sort of a like the first episode starting with um Rand, like the person who steals the sex tape, for me, I was like, Can we can we get a move on? <laughs> I just I just did I just did not care about this sad sax life enough to watch it for an hour. Right. I actually think the series should be 30 minute episodes. That would be nice. Well, you it, I'm reminded of the last season of The Crown where they had the one bottle episode where the guy breaks into the queen's place and then it never comes up again. If it if it were sort of like a bottle episode like that, I think that would be good and it'd be a good mm-hmm. featured role for him. But to start off this series, uh I don't know that I hate it, but you're right, it does it, it takes a while to get into the like the backstory of their relationship, which is really what is what we're all in here for. That's episode it's two. Set a weird, it's set a weird tone, but also, I guess that's also the nature of that is the article that they made it from. Right. Uh, which, by the way, shout out to Amanda Chicago Lewis, who wrote the original Rolling Stone article um, that this is based on. Because um, I used to work with Amanda back at BuzzFeed. She's a cannabis reporter now, uh, mm. and her work is excellent. Uh, and she was always uh, one of my favorite people to slack with at work. Well, so. does she know that all of my worst drug experiences have been with marijuana? Guys, you do not want to see me when marijuana enters my body. I, you th- Lewis is reefer madness, guys. Uh, no, that Helen Hunt <laughs> movie from the late 70s where she jumps out the window? That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Look up her SNL hosting stint where they play it, it during her monologue. It's real. I really want more. I really wanted more weirdness from the series, too. I loved when uh, Jason Mansukas is Tommy Lee's penis and he just starts talking to him. But I, I do think that's that, funny. I, I think it's funny, but I think it's also the thing you're talking about. Of They added it because they wanted a quote unquote new angle. And so the penis mm. talking, the puppetry of the penis. That said, I kept looking at this dick and wondering how they did it. Because it was more realistic than the average fake dick, I thought. Apparently, they had four puppeteers um, working this dick. And it sounds like a night in West Hollywood. (laughs) Frank Oz is shook. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think moments like that would have landed better if it were 30 minutes. I, I think it really should just be a comedy. 
Right. Uh, yes. Oh, that would be really nice if it were a comedy. Um, that said, I, it does also cast a light necessarily on how gross it is that sex tapes end up in our hands. And then we just pretend they're like any other VHS addition to our lives, like Jane Fonda's workout or something, you know, but when it's obviously an invasion, obviously it's a part of rape culture that this would be out here. And in fact, I'm going to guess 99% of celebrity sex tapes, something similar occurred. So I've been on podcasts before where I've talked about the best sex tapes and that's gross. Like you need to not be having conversations that normalize the fact that these are in our hands. What podcast was this? The man show? I'm not going to call it out. Also, you know, my, you know, my boss used to work on the man show. Don't even bring that up. Every once in a while, I loved, we, I loved the man show. It did have funny moments. Every once in a while, we get to make a joke about the man show on uh, Kimmel, which always uh, brings a Actually, he, he's the least problematic man show host. Look at the other ones. Uh, Joe Rogan took over. Adam Carolla, a little worried. Yeah. What's funny about even the man show, right, is it's from this specific era, I think, of culture. Mm. You know, like like the Pam and Tommy Lee um, fascination is right there with here's a show on TV where women jump on trampolines. Right. The advent of Spike TV is approaching. Yes. Yeah. And which, which, uh, right in the history books. The kids are learning about that, I'm sure. <laughs> Side note. Remember when Spike Lee sued Spike TV? Uh, I completely forgot about it until you just said that. Wait, just because it was called Spike? Like he's the only Spike in the world? <laughs> Don't tell Christopher Durang. Don't tell Christopher Durang. Yeah. Meanwhile, Spike Jones is over there like, do you think I could get in on this? <laughs> Snoopy's brother, Spike, he's smoking in the desert. He doesn't care. He's like, have fun. One thing I was thinking about with the depiction of them was just how fucking fun they were. We do uh, crave they, fun celebrities. Definitely that. Yes. And the way people will parse fun celebrities now, like a fucking Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly, right? I'm like... Can we not just be amused by them? Right. Like, that's, um, this is what I want from celebrities. I want celebrities getting married after knowing each other for five seconds, okay? Like, I want them having, like, weird sex swings and shit in their homes. Like, this is, this is what I want. No, also, I mean, once upon a time, and I mean, still, you can go on Old Stars Wikipedia, and the, um, a major pleasure of the Wikipedia is below their picture is the list of the marriages. And there's always two that are like 1963 to 1963, 1964 to 1964. You know, the Ethel Merman, Ernest Borgnine marriages. People were just messed up and trying shit out and bored with being single and then bored with being married. In fact, most of being a celebrity, I think, is finding ways not to be bored. I mean, Tommy Lee was married to Heather Lockley or pre-Pamela Anderson. Right, Exactly. Mimi and Rogers and Tom Heather Cruise. Locklear, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the Heather Locklear marriage also literally ends the year that she joins Melrose Place. We love that. See, now things are going well, so I got to get out she of got, here. She, she got out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Amanda Woodward now. I'm done. Aaron, yeah. Aaron Spelling was like, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, I would love it if it... I, I mean... That kind of makes sense to me. I imagine him coming to set and being like, actually, what if you didn't? Final note on this couple. I was thinking about the fact that um, I wish there were more wild black celebrities like this mm. in culture. Just because I feel like black celebrities are kind of forced into being like aspirational. You know, that's why like Will and Jada fucking have stayed together forever. You know, because it's like we can't break up. We got to be aspirational for the culture. Um, but... 
Then I was thinking of one of my favorite 90s crazy um, black celebrity couples. And maybe I have to write it myself. But um, I want the Pam and Tommy treatment for Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Oh, my God. How have we not got... Well, I mean, your lips to God's ears. I mean, it's crazy basically we're going to get through every 90s pop culture phenomenon in movie form and cinematic form so i this will happen you may have to do it but i mean her burning guys, down andre's house i need to see that depicted oh yeah by, like who would play lisa lopez well i mean we did have the little mama performance once upon a time so if she's still available <laughs> and i've got news for you she is that might work out uh, but lisa Lopez lopez is also a very specific personality there's a lot of uh juiciness you can uh, get into there um but uh man behind maybe just reenacting behind the musics would be a good uh lane for uh biopics in the future you know like the one where leaf garrett was reunited with somebody who got in an accident with or so, like there's lots of potential there that and let's also get a limited series about julia roberts leaving Kiefer sutherland at the altar oh god and then lyle lovett being obsessed with her even after they broke up i had a professor in college who did a profile on lyle lovett and he went to his house soon after and there were still pictures of julia everywhere i was like this is exactly why i went to college to learn this fact and this fact alone <laughs> university and of then, iowa thank you and the Kiefer part is that she left him for jason patrick his best friend at the time um and now they're friends again when she did runaway bride that's one of the cheekiest fucking things a celebrity has ever done one other thing i want to say about julia roberts and this is one of our classic detours is how this bitch is so beloved when really in like the late 90s and early 2000s like she was sort of a bitch you remember her aloe vera shirt oh yes which was a, a reference to, sorry, what was it at the time? That was when she was dating cinematographer Danny Motor, who was married to um, Vera Steinberg. Oh, uh, my a makeup artist. God. Like that's... literally just wearing a shirt like, I'm fucking your man. I'm going to say, you'll note that they're who still was together. This woman? You'll note that they're still together. Um, no, yeah. one, one time Julia Roberts did an interview on a red carpet. This had to have been the year she was up for August Osage County. So like 2014. And she said to somebody who was working for a network, and I don't remember which one it was, but she goes, uh, well, you guys are in the toilet right now. Woof! <laughs> On air, <laughs> Julia. It's just funny to me that my fave Angelina Jolie was, you know, seen as like the bad girl because of the Brad Pitt affair, and you know, taking him away from Jennifer Aniston. Meanwhile. Julia Roberts was doing hijinks, and <laughs> she, people barely remember them. She's buying threadless tees to haunt this woman. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't remember which late night talk show or something it was on, but I do remember Julia Roberts once being confronted with the fact that she was sort of like a bitch to someone in the 90s. Oh, uh, Juliana Margulies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she apologized. It was like, you know what? I probably was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. Yeah, yeah. It'd be weird if she wasn't a little bit bitchy when you're that when you're like she was like holding the movie industry on her shoulder. She was the number one star. <laughs> Amazing in the Pelican uh, Brief. See, look at look at me loving her more after this conversation. Like I'm filled with endorphins. Let's. I think we need one last movie with like Julia, George, Sandra, mm. Tom, 
Oh yeah, Denzel. Yeah, the 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 the, pe- the last people who held the film industry together, like put them all in a movie. Yeah, the Expendables, but for people who like were dependable Jay Leno guests. Yeah, or, or just give us the Pelican Brief too. Woof. Which allegedly the the scene where she reacts to a sudden explosion was actually they didn't tell her the explosion was going to happen, and so she reacts like she's going to die. Anyway. That I think Vera probably unethical. watches that yeah. scene. Vera watches that scene every night. <laughs> Time for bed. Click. All right. Well, we're back. I'll sit down with Marlon James to discuss his latest book, Moon Witch Spider King. And then after that, Lewis and I dive into the Francis Ford Coppola Empire. Keep it is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes. When you see footprints in the sand that was when i carried you in my barefoot dreams rub now is that a leona lewis song <laughs> no uh if you want to bring coziness into your life you turn to barefoot dreams especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary with those 30 years of coziness barefoot dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is a Man Booker Prize-winning novelist at the vanguard of post-colonial literature. He was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world. His newest book, Moon Witch Spider King, is out now. Please welcome Marlon James. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And congrats on the second book in the Dark Star trilogy. Thank you. Uh, which is such a massive undertaking, I'm sure, uh, not just to read, uh, but <laughs> I did enjoy all of it, uh, both of them. I read um, both of them within the span of this year, uh, so it was exciting mm-hmm. to dive into both. And for you, um, I want to know, I guess, about um, writing this book um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Right. Um the first one was written pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so what was it like um, diving back into this world um, while the world around us was changing? Did you feel like at any point that you wanted to write something else? Or were you like, I've got to just finish this? Yeah. No, I, I really sort of plunged headfirst into writing this. Um, largely because, well, there's nothing else to do. The thing about the pandemic 
is you spend a lot of it, a lot of several days, day after day, week after week, doing the same damn thing. And it's, it's, you know, it's long stretches of boredom and it's long stretches of fear and all of that. And, and um, this book actually became an escape for me. So, you know, I'd be at, um, I wasn't even at home. I was at somebody else's home at their dining table. And that's how I began writing it. And um, for me, writing and keeping like almost work days, because I mean, when I write, I go to work, you know, it's starting at like, 10 and right into like six or whenever they, they need their dining table to actually eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I sort of disappear in this world. And I think because I just was so committed to it and so committed to escaping every day that the book ended up being the second fastest book I've ever written. Okay. And how long did that take? This was around 18 months. Okay. Yeah. That's a good turnaround. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you said about the pandemic largely being we're doing nothing. You know, there's a lot of stretches mm-hmm. of boredom and it's like this is, you know, a time where you could finally just work on something and do something. Do you right. feel like this era has sort of changed how people will write in general? I, I don't know. I don't know if it has. I mean, actually, that was what was different for me. I'm actually used to writing with outside distractions okay. and I actually prefer it. Um, so you're you not know, like a go away and write a book uh, in a nah, cabin kind of person? No, nah, to me, I don't find peace in silence. Silence feels like deafness to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, it's, it's the, the books I write tend to be pretty big and I tend to have lots of characters. And, it, and, and I end up writing those type of books by engaging with society, honestly. Um, even in my office, I used to open the windows so I could hear traffic. <laughs> yeah um so it's it's the peace and quiet thing I actually found very very scary mm-hmm. i know in an interview before that you said that the the book of night women uh mm-hmm. was um sort of uh in a response to i think someone had told you that um you don't write women very well mm-hmm. uh and you were like you had taken that criticism in and were writing um for women in that book, uh, mm-hmm. how did it feel um, doing that again for this book? Because the first book, you know, is sort of like uh, all Tracer's perspective. Um, it's coming from a man. Uh, mm-hmm. And this book really highlights, um, especially sort of at the end, you know, I think that last line, too, you know, is like um, like a woman had to do this. Mm-hmm. Um. I I mean, I probably, you know, I, I probably actually know, in contrast to back when I started as a writer, I actually probably feel more comfortable writing female characters than male. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not sure why, other than I, I guess in some ways I care about what happened to them more than I care about what happened. <laughs> um, so the to me was actually harder to write. Okay. Um, but also, you know, there are aspects about Sagan Irrespo- you know, irrespective of, of her gender that I was interested in. I also do like writing about old people and older people. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like um, sort of, I'm very fascinated, even when I'm not writing, I'm very fascinated with sort of excavating older lives. Like I want to know people, you know, if I, if I, if I'm at somewhere and, and, you know, I, the oldest person in the room is probably the person I'm talking to. 
Because <laughs> I'm just, I'm just fascinated. I you know, most of the books I've written tend to be historical. Even the, even the fantasy novels are set in a fantasy past. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, Sogolan, even more so than Tracker, I was interested in how she became who she became. I wanted to know. I see an old woman. I immediately want to know what kind of girl, um, there were, um, because. Sogolan in the present is because of certain things happening to her. And I want to know what those are. And I think that's really the, the, the difference. I think a lot of times um, men write female characters or white people write black characters or the so-called other, and they're not actually that interested in them. Or they're not interested in how these people enter the room what brought them here and why they why they behave like that. And that's why we always have problems with representation and problems with people writing the quote unquote other, but you have to be interested. And I think and you have to do the work and you have to dig deep. And I think those are the things that um Sagalam was just somebody who was very was very interesting to do all of that. Because she had just she she looked she just came across as somebody with a lot of secrets. Mm-hmm. Um what do you feel like your first um inclination to sort of dive into creating a new story comes from you know i know that your first book um you know sort of coincided with um a lot of your involvement in like evangelical church uh Mm -hmm. and you know um then you know there's the book of night women uh which is you know sort of about digging back into um you know the history of like slavery jamaica Mm -hmm. uh and then you know um there's a personal connection to your family, I feel like, from uh, the Book of Seven Killings, you know? Right. Um, so w- where do you sort of find stories um, that you want to tell? Um, man, a lot of these stories just happen by accident. I mean, I find them because I just read. I read everything. And, mm-hmm. um, and I'm curious about everything. And, um, you know, uh, this this happened... I, I, this happened because of all the research I was doing. I realized at some point, you know, as a, a black person in the in the diaspora, that whenever I thought of origin narratives, I was always coming back to slave narratives. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but there's a whole history of black people beyond slavery. But I, I mean, some of it I knew, and I knew the folklore. But um, the more and more I read mythologies from other cultures, is the more I realized how crucial they are to cultural identity. Um, you know, I think, you know, they may not think about it, but Thor and Odin and Viking lore is crucial to Scandinavia. And, you know, everything from King Arthur to Robin Hood is crucial to, to, to the UK. Um, it really was the research that led to the novel as opposed to the other way around. So, you know, I find stories and sometimes I get lucky. And this was me researching mythologies because I didn't think I had a whole mythological history. And that's not something I thought about um, initially. But then, you know, I realized that, you know, you go to, you look at Europe and, and Asia, and they may not think about it because they have the privilege of not thinking about it. But there is something to be said for a people that have their mythologies and their mythological histories. Because your mythology is kind of the instinctual history of a people. Um, mythology was religion once. You know, and religion was religion was fact for some people. Um, I grew up 
with the ground zero of my origins always being slavery. Mm-hmm. And I had to be more to myself and more to as a, a black person in this diaspora than that. So that's what I went looking for. I went looking for a kind of a, the type of history I don't read in history books. And from that, I just thought, wow, there's there's a novel here. There's, there, there's several novels here. Cause just, mm-hmm. It was just the stories I was learning was just so deep and so rich and so multilayered. I thought, man, there are like 10 novels out of this. I, I would say that one of the biggest takeaways from both of these books is just sort of the, the inspiration for even myself to want to look up so many more of those just sort of like folklores and things mm. that have influenced you. Because like you said, there's the people sort of, you know, in, in Europe or Asia are lucky to have, you know, have that still like a distant memory in their culture. But, you know, growing up black in America, I was very interested, you know, in... um sort of mythology and stories, you know, but in school, the ones that were taught was always, you know, like Greek and Roman, you know? And so like, I know the Greek and Roman histories, you know, Mm -hmm. front and back. The only African story I feel like we were ever taught is Anasazi. Yeah. It's, but also the funny thing about that also is that even though we're taught these things and taught British, taught these mythologies are a sign of civilization and sophisticated culture, Whenever we write um, anything that's not that, it's considered some sort of child's play. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think there's still this idea of serious literature, whatever that might mean. And what if you're writing fantasy or so on, you're writing something else. And a lot of people, you know, think, oh, this this change of turn for for me as a writer, or my, you know, you know, this isn't serious stuff, which again goes against the history. Um, we've always used our mythological stories to tell serious things. Um, you know, one of the things that we use these stories to do is to explain the unexplainable. Well, why do big disasters happen to innocent people? You honestly, the one way we usually been able to explain it is to think of bigger forces and mythological forces and supernatural things and so on. And when you read these stories, you start to wonder, when did we start thinking they were false? Or when do you think they were right? Other, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff we stopped thinking were true because church told us that. Mm-hmm. You know, but churches are sort of fantastical beliefs too. So it was, um, it's, it's, it's not just um, accepting your mythological history, but realizing that this is something that from which you can tell serious stories and important stories because we've always done it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think I think about that sort of a lot in the sense of, you know, for obviously people who believe in Christianity, you know, it um it is real. You know, you think of you think of God being with you at all times. Um, you think of these stories. Maybe not every story in the Bible, but you know, you th- you mm-hmm. think of you know like God being a constant presence in your life. And um, it it is interesting to think about um the myths of the past. You know, like for people who lived then um those those gods existed around you at all mm-hmm. times uh and keeping track of all of those gods and you know mm-hmm. thinking like oh yeah. this thing happening in my life you know was because of odin this thing was because yeah. of apollo but, but but the interesting thing about reading african mythologies and african stories and folklore is that you come across with a picture of your origins that you may not have expected the thing I didn't expect, one of the things because of the reputation that a lot of present day African countries have for, say, homophobia, 
I never expected to find things like queerness and transness and sexual fluidity mm. in African mythology, and, and except it's all there. It's it's um you know it's it's no no when I'm with an African American audience, I go, you ever noticed that you never have a, you never had a problem calling a single person them? Mm-hmm. Like where you think that comes from? Yeah, it's it's um. <laughs> It comes from from you know the stuff that couldn't be driven out on a slave ship, and and that's still you know that's still with us. It's it comes from it, and um, the more you read these old stories and you read these old legends and 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 and, and honestly old histories, you realize just how funny enough contemporary all of it sounds and you wonder some for me at least i find myself wondering then what the hell happened i mean i knew what happened church but still <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh the wide hand of the catholic church do you think that black american authors would maybe be serviced better by us reaching into our lost roots um rather than trying to decipher contemporary histories that we've had in America? I, I don't know if it's an either or. I think um, we definitely, I mean, look at what's going on around us. We definitely need people to report what they see through their window more now more than ever. Um, I do think that there's a sense of bigger picture of who we are and what we should be doing that we miss when we don't look at these things. I remember the last time I was in Nigeria, a scholar came up to me and said, have you ever thought that maybe the reasons why African-American kids are not doing well in school is that they were never meant to be taught that way? And the the idea stuck with me and it's never left me. And, I, and that was something he said to me like 10 years ago, that there is a certain ideological base that we don't have that I think we pay for. So I don't necessarily think um, we all need to go back to these things for the sake of writing folklore and writing magical stories. But I do think we need to go back for it for a sense of wholeness and, uh, and, and to, to write from the kind of authority and honestly privilege that, you know, sometimes I see white people write from, um, you know, that um, it's, it's, um, it's like, it's like, being the biggest fan of rock and roll and never listening to a blues record. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. you have to come back to the blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always a moment, especially in like a Black History Month. I think I saw like my feed is always full of someone with like a meme or mantra, you know, about like mm-hmm. this came from Black culture, this came from Black mm-hmm. culture. And it's like people seem to remember it in a moment when they share something, but never in the moment when they're actually listening to, no, this came from. Mm-hmm. You know, but I also roots. think true, and I think it it can go further. We can we can we can say yes, this came from black culture and blah blah. But we, we probably need to get to the point where we go, no, this is Ibu, and this came from Akan, and this part here is Ashanti. Um, you know, uh, it's like when people say things like, "Where's your black instrument?" I'm like, "Well, we, well, we don't have Ashanti Day yet," <laughs> and I would kill for Ibu Week. You know, and yes, give me Fulani Saturdays. <laughs> um, until then, we'll take what we can get. But that's so it, that's where you have to go. To, that's 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 you know that's um where to work in terms of 
uncovering who we are it needs to go. Mm-hmm. And you're a teacher yourself. So what is your approach to teaching students about writing, about how they can tell stories differently? Well, I get students pretty young. I get them between 17, 18, 19. And the first Mm -hmm. thing you have to convince young people is that they have a story worth telling. Um, You have students who think my life is so wrecked. My life is so have so many hardships, so many things I'm not proud of, so many things that um, I'm, you know, so many things that I, 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 you know, can't afford or whatever. Some reason why I shouldn't, it's a word kind of imposter syndrome. And you have other kids who think, man, I'm so privileged. I'm so have all of this going for me, blah, blah, blah. I can't write. And the funny thing about both those responses is they don't think they have anything in common, but they do have one thing in common, which is shame. Um, both of those responses, I'm not good enough or I'm too privileged, are shame responses. And the first thing I have to get writers to get over is that sense of shame about writing. And it's not about self-love and it's not about self-hatred. It's about self-curiosity. So if I give you a paper and say, give me a story about your worst traits, I'm not asking you to lacerate yourself over such of those reasons. I want you to go in like a doctor and diagnose yourself. Mm-hmm. And be, uh, the funny thing is, everybody loves that. They can do it because everybody kind of hate themselves in a way. If I go, <laughs> okay, give me a story, give me something about the thing you love about yourself. They're paralyzed. They can't do it because <laughs> they're afraid they're gonna. It's gonna seem stupid, or they have nothing, in, nothing deep to say. We can talk days about stuff we hate. Stuff for life, you just go, that's good. And I said, no, it's the same thing. It's it's this thing you think you're good at, interrogate it. And that's the thing. It's um the first thing, the first hurdle I have to get over with students is a hurdle of them thinking they have nothing to say. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, listen, I mean, I I love the books and I want to say that like you already, you know you're getting into something when you open up a book and there's a map there's a map there's a map and there are character lists and um, i really was never like a lord of the rings fan mm-hmm. but from your other interviews like i saw that you know like you you read x-men a lot as a kid mm-hmm. and that i think is what locked it in for me and i think that is also where sort of my love of these um sprawling characters and stories mm-hmm. and things come from and you know yeah, well comics were my fantasy it was it, uh, and, and really growing up i mean a lot of rings i didn't read until i was uh, until you know until i was in my 30s i still haven't read dune somebody's gonna <laughs> hear that and freak the hell out i still haven't read dune um you know part of it is also what could you get as a kid and you could get comics Mm-hmm. Um, and in both, and I mean, both Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and Moomit Spider King are literally both a team of superpowered people on a mission. Um, so it's still, in some ways, I'm still like writing about a team of superpowered mutants mm-hmm. um, in a way. And I'm still inspired by comics. Are comic books a medium that you're ever interested in working in? I am very interested in it. I, I've, I've been trying to write comics for years. I've been failing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even draw. <laughs> but I just never could get it together. But it's something I've always been interested in. It's something, I mean, I still, there's still around five or six comics that I do read. And still mm-hmm. read, like, comic, comic. I go to the store and buy the single comic. 
Like, which one should I be reading now? X-Men has gone in a whole new direction, which finally made me not just return to the comic, but return to being a comic buyer. Okay. Like, I, didn't even, I didn't even buy the trade paperbacks. I go and buy the actual little comics. Okay. <laughs> and I think, um, especially that series, House of X, Powers of X. Mm-hmm. Um, point of, I was talking to um, the, one of the creators of X-Men, one of my biggest heroes, and, um, and he didn't like it, this new direction at all. And he always said, you know, well, X-Men, no matter how bad it got, always had a glimmer of hope. And this series starts with a person. This series starts with the, the idea that the hope is ridiculous. Humans are never going to change. It's, it's basically X-Men turn into there's no justice, just us moment. You know, I'm like, you know, maybe maybe your X-Men was Martin Luther King and this X-Men is Malcolm X. What can I tell you? But <laughs> the thing that's fascinating is, well, what do you do if you lose faith in humanity? Like, humans are never going to change and they're never going to give us what we want. So we should just take it for ourselves. And that's where the story, and that's the beginning of this X-Men. So, of course, as somebody who's gone through some stuff and who lived, you know, six blocks from where George Floyd was killed. Yeah, I'm going to start. That X-Men is going to resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, for anyone reading uh, even older X-Men now, you know, a lot a lot more people are going to resonate with Magneto than they will mm-hmm. um, Professor yeah. X's mantra. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Driving me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I look forward to your eventual X-Men series. I would love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Moon Witch Spider King is out now. When we're back, Coppola. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Ahead of the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, GQ published a profile of Francis Ford Coppola we just couldn't refuse talking about. Ooh, Gene Shalit's here. <laughs> Peter Travers, is that you? Yeah. Uh, this was an exciting read because I think that Francis Ford Coppola is obviously a director who has made um, some of the most iconic films in film history. Um, but... Mostly, I just think of him as the man who's made the wine that's sitting over there on my kitchen counter. And it's that's gradually taken over his life. He became the wine guy over time. But also, I mean, the thing that's really nice about this profile is, so you already know a lot about Francis Ford Coppola, probably. You know about the Godfather films and the hell of making Apocalypse Now and his more interesting, strange movies like The Conversation. Uh, but also... You know, he kind of went away for a while and stopped making movies eventually and then made some really weird movies in the 90s and 2000s. This is somebody who basically invented the term flop era when you look at the 80s. And uh, <laughs> um, 
I, one from the heart is a movie starring Terry Garr and Raul Julia. That was a musical that bankrupted him. He spent $26 million on it and it went nowhere. And could, I couldn't love two movie stars more, Raul Julia and Terry Garr. So that's always unfortunate. But the, the pleasure of this profile is that he is so, no other way to put it, mentally active. He's, he seems as invested in making movies great as ever. And now he's obsessed with making this project with $120 million of his own money. Already sounds treacherous to me. It's called Megalopolis. And nobody's officially signed on, but Kate Blanchett, all right. So he's on my team. He picked, Allegedly, Kate Blanchett's part of the picture. And also Oscar Isaac. Let me just say something. Does it feel like people just kind of throw the name Oscar Isaac out to be in any movie? Like he just kind of belongs in whatever movie, no matter what. It's like when you li- read a list of pitches for who should host a TV show and Aisha Tyler's there. It's just like she kind of just belongs on a list of proposed hosts. <laughs> I mostly throw around the name Oscar Isaac in my bedroom. Uh, it's usually oh, okay. not. It's usually not him there. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I'm usually asked, why are you saying Oscar Isaac? But one day it'll be him. Okay. Well, he doesn't need to hear that, but okay, great. <laughs> uh, I also appreciate putting him in something that's not this um, weird red carpet relationship with Jessica Chastain. Oh, go on. I just, I just felt like there was a period where they were on the red carpet together all the time, and I wasn't quite sure what movie they were in together, or whether they were just friends supporting one another. Oh, oh, you mean Oscar Isaac. I thought you meant Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, yes. They were in, of course, A Most Violent Year, and then they were in, what was it recently? Scenes from a Marriage that was sort of oh, a remake okay. of. So they, were, they were supporting Scenes from a Marriage. I, I remember A Most Violent Year, um, a most boring film. Right. I can't remember anything about it except Pretty Colors. The coats, the coats were fantastic. It's the right. the literally Aretha's quote of beautiful gowns, uh, yes. great gowns. This was beautiful coats, great coats, and nothing else going on in that movie. It's like what that movie is to coats, the movie Changeling with Angelina Jolie is to hats. It's like, woof, you can't deny it had hats. <sighs> She's got some great bowl hats in that movie. Right. And then and also to be weeping in a hat, that's very special because she's spending all it's very like giving give me my son back. She screams to strangers. Yeah. Um, but I, what I do appreciate about Francis is this sort of um, way he is obsessed with film, but also like obsessed with getting his vision. Right. I, I was thinking about him. Um, I think it was maybe like a couple years ago when um his finally his um director's cut of the cotton club came out because yes. uh, with you know, jack hay in it if i'm not mistaken yeah when it was first released you know uh orion pictures i guess sort of like really edited the film down uh and took out a lot of the um scenes that he really wanted in it a lot of critics sort of um re-evaluated this film and were like um it was amazing as opposed to the original one that was released in 84 which got sort of like middling reviews and was a commercial failure that film by the way between 2015 and 2017 he spent over 500,000 of his own money to restore the film to the original cut i get so um cynical about the idea of director's cuts because to me in my mind that means oh here comes the self-indulgent version where you have like whatever some 17 minute poetic sequence that makes no sense but actually what that could mean is the original movie is the version that he basically didn't want out that the studio made him cut down to size and now 
hopefully this means there's actually a little bit more artistry in the film. I, I know that's not always the case. I, again, like when Lord of the Rings gets longer and longer, I start getting a migraine. I just don't need anything to be that long. But They discover uh, three new hours of the Lord of the Rings every year. Right. And it still looks like a screensaver to me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, recently uh, during the pandemic, I rewatched the Godfather movies and these movies, obviously. But all three? Uh, yes, all three. Okay. Um, I still have not seen Godfather part three. I mean, there are certain scenes in Godfather part three is a best picture nominee, but it is known for the, for Winona Ryder well, so having to drop. Look up, baby. Yeah, no, I know. I, I'm not saying Joker was nominated too. I'm not saying great movies get nominated for Best Picture always. But Godfather Part Three, uh, Winona Ryder obviously dropped out of that movie, and then she was replaced with Sofia Coppola, who shall we say was an amateur actress. You'll notice she doesn't go, do much acting nowadays. She tends to be behind the camera, and we and, and does a great job at it. But anyway, um, the Godfather movies are about to gain in legend because there's another movie coming out that I just saw a trailer for about the making of the Godfather. Uh, mm -hmm. in which Miles Teller is the star of it. And he is a, a king. A, unfortunately, this is not a, this is not a quality I'm proud of. It's in the Charlie Puth category of, I know you're going to wrong me in a serious way. And I bet it'll have to do with vaccines. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're safely past the, um, um, time when we would have found out someone is anti-vax who's a celebrity. You know what? Who's to say? You you think everybody can't shut up about being anti-vax, but I think some people tend to be a bit furtive. You know, they're they're career obsessed, so they do keep it quiet. But anyway, um, what what gets to me about The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, namely The Godfather, actually, is that looking back, I don't find it to be a terribly deep movie. I do mm -hmm. think it is amazingly entertaining, but the thing that's fun about it is, it to me is like the beginning of reality TV. It's just a movie about shifting alliances. It's just, oh, we've got to be on that side in order to survive. And then those people are eliminated. It truly is like the first season of Big Brother ever. Mm. Uh, and I know that sounds like not a compliment, but now every TV show we watch is like that. So in a way, I find it to be very formative. That's fair. You know, there's like the, the soapy sort of like, um, you know, double crosses. Yes, you know, right. I mean, like succession and every sort of like family soap um, builds off of this, you know. Uh, and I, I think that um, I would honestly agree that I feel like more primetime soap operas and sort of like even daytime ones like shift it more into um family versus family mm -hmm. um you know in the wake of sort of like the mob explosion of the 70s and the godfather right. had a big thing to do with that obviously are yeah. you a godfather part one or part two person you know what Ultimately, I have to say part two, because I think, it, first of all, it's the one of the few movies I can think of where the flashbacks to the distant past work really well. I'm still a little mad at the lost daughter right now. I just don't think the Jesse Buckley portion is that interesting. Happy mm -hmm. she got nominated. She was going to get nominated at some point anyway. I'm fine with this nomination. But anyway, I think, I mean, here's what I'll say. If you're a fan of acting, everybody in that movie is just here's a phrase I hate firing on all cylinders. Just there is a certain like caliber of actor or a certain kind of actor, particularly a seventies oriented person who is mainly just terrifying and they do it well. And Robert Duvall scaring the shit out of you and whatever movie he does. I also watched apocalypse now recently for this podcast and man, 
That man does anger so well. I believe I once told Marsha Gay Harden she was like my Robert Duvall, uh, bringing angst and power and grit to the screen uh, unrelentingly and, and, and with a sort of calm, like it belongs on the screen. But uh, I think I have to go with the second because the Robert, du- Robert De Niro performance is just unforgettable. Yeah, uh, I would go with the second one as well. I weirdly didn't even watch either Godfather films until graduate school. So like like late 2000s, uh, like two, around 2009, uh, 2010. Um, but I weirdly watched The Godfather 2 first because it was screening at some like outdoor film festival in New York. Uh, Ideal and, setting. Like some, like, like some summer um, screening series. Uh, and I went with friends and I watched it uh, and became obsessed with it. And then I had to watch the first one and mm-hmm. i wonder if my love of part two is because i saw that one first mm. uh, the same way i love scream two more because i did see scream two before i saw scream that's fucking weird too i i will say something that goes underrated about the godfather and godfather part two is how awesome diane keaton is in these movies she's first of all like the only woman with any real screen time in these i uh, this my apologies to Talia Shire who does a fine job with her one scene in The Godfather Part Two for which she was Oscar nominated. Really weird nomination to me. It sticks out to me as a stretch. But um, uh, 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 she 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 plays basically the most conscientious character in these movies. And I feel like weirdly you don't discuss these movies when you're talking about the canon of uh, Diane Keaton. You know, you think immediately of Annie Hall and. Uh, what, her romantic comedies and something's got to give and stuff. Her but BFF she is, Woody Allen. Oh you yeah, think about right. him. You right. think about him. You think about the hats. Yeah, you think you think about her weird Deadwood extra wardrobe. Listen, she is she. <laughs> uh, she's living out her smooth criminal life, Lewis. Yeah, <laughs> every. <laughs> I I want to see her lean. Yeah. <laughs> um. What's interesting is I feel like he's so attached to this era of the 70s, which is I feel like the the era of film that you really discover in uh, film school. Because I feel I like guess, our, yeah. our age, our specific age, every professor that we sort of had, like their favorite movie would have been from the 70s. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, also, I just think like specifically about 70s movies, and this isn't just Francis Ford Coppola movies, but, you know, Clute and All the President's Men and Three Days of the Condor. It's like paranoia runs through these movies and also just the intensity of making bad choices and Mm -hmm. how it can go wrong and could it go even more wrong and you're and you're stuck having to answer to this person and that person and does that person know and so uh i think he was really the master of that kind of intensity and insanity and horror but i also want to say he has had some fucking weird movies in his career but the one thing about the 70s that i feel like why it's hard to get back to that era is because they seem to be like the the paranoid era really sort of belongs to like straight white men sure because i feel like films coming after that era are you know sort of like films made my women and like people of color who sort of like weren't really paranoid they sort of already knew the world was evil (laughs) <laughs> yeah right it's, like you can't it's, exist it's not in a, a fun paranoid, game yeah you can't exist in a paranoid thriller if you know that people actually are out to get you yeah <laughs> right it's not a cinematic to you it's simply <laughs> tuesday yeah um oh yeah then, but, but man some of the movies in francis Ford coppola's career are lol i mean the movie jack it's which, one of the worst films ever made uh and it's certainly his worst film and 
Robin Williams and J- I think we talked about this last week when we talked about Marry Me, but like Robin Williams oh, yeah. and J-Lo in a film where he is a kid who's aging uh, quickly because he has progeria and yet every fucking scene in this movie like is him like um having some woman flirt with him oh my god and he's a child also not only is the movie bad or like atrocious it's also a bad version of another movie which is big you know mm-hmm. you if you see big and then see this movie you're mad at him for being extra contrived which is something you would never say about francis Ford Coppola. i do want to shout out a movie from the 60s that isn't perfect but is a coming of age uh new yorkish movie that's fun it's called you're a big boy now it's his first first film and mm-hmm. there's a great performance from elizabeth hartman who i bring up when I talk about a patch of blue, my favorite uh, Sidney Poitier movie, she plays a, mm-hmm. uh, a a blind girl who is tortured by her mother, who is a ve- mm-hmm. uh, Shelley Winters giving a very Monique and Precious performance. Um, I bring but, up Peggy Sue got married all the time. Um, oh which yeah, I adore, which another, yeah. But also shout out to Bram Stoker's Dracula. I have never seen Bram Stoker's Dracula. Is oh, it anything? I mean, I mean, it watching that film will remind you of what everyone used to um think about keanu reeves before we realized that he's like just a very sweet person and then the sort of john wick movies um had um sort of film twitter um all by itself um recontextualize uh keanu reeves's career do you realize how like now we sort of act like we've always loved keanu reeves when oh, right. dracula and like much ado about nothing like people were constantly like he cannot act no and and, and he's weirdly placed in these movies too yeah, yeah. like if you're you, to be bill and ted and then also this felt really mm-hmm. jarring once it's a time, time capsule of sort of like what keanu reeves used to be of uh, sort of in film so i would i would recommend it for that um and before we wrap up by the way i have to point out that um you may have had the francis ford wines but i tried the gia coppola orange wine recently and it's one of the best fucking wines i've ever had orange wine that seems like it's from a dystopian future but i believe you it's it's the summer of natural wines lewis okay dua lipa is drinking natural wines uh everywhere you go there's a natural wine or like skin contact wine store popping up gotta get into orange wines this year okay but it sounds like what they drink in 1984 it just concerns me (laughs) i'll also point out that like she's actually involved in the making of these wines uh and i like the sophia wine i think it's just a tribute to his daughter but Gia was like, um, Gia took her, Gia took time off from directing Carly Rae Jepsen videos oh. uh, to uh, make orange wines and sangria. By the way, we are we getting a Carly Rae Jepsen joint this year? Because I am needing it this summer. I am re-obsessed with her. I just shuffle her music in the car. And she, I think, well, how do you feel about this theory? Has more good songs than Lady Gaga. Mm, wild thing to say. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm, set, I'm also, setting how off the sh- girls. How are you shuffling songs in the car you don't have? <laughs> I I had a car until recently. <laughs> the memory so, of the Lewis. car is still with me. If you, yes. if you say so, Lewis, maybe you never had a car. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Now I'm in Three Days of the Condor or Memento or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, we're back. Keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis, 
Once you keep it this week. Okay, I'm clutching the table because this is a Twitter-based one, which means people are already up in arms. And by that, I mean typing at strangers. Uh, <laughs> this writer in LA, Megan Beth uh, Coaster, I think her name is pronounced Coaster. It's K-O-E-S-T-E-R. She uh, writes for Vice and has written for Jezebel. She's uh, a comedian, LA type. She wrote a tweet that I thought uh, was funny. The tweet is, I've never seen an episode of Ted Lasso, but its fans have big childless adult whose entire personality is predicated on their love of Disneyland energy. Guys, uh, funny. You, do you not? Are you not familiar with that personality type? I can't. I, every third gay person, their whole thing is loving Mickey Mouse. Okay, it's like a disease. It took, it's taken over brains. You go to Anaheim, it's thirty-four-year-olds named Kevin. Okay, that's everybody who's there. Um. Anyway. These so-called comedy fans, people who love Ted Lasso, are not laughing. <laughs> I'm like mm. an e-correspondent. They're not laughing. <laughs> and I have to say, every response to this, I will say, benign joke is a different version of pathetic. Of not being able to take a joke and also coming up with reasons it's bad. this joke is offensive that have nothing to do with her. Oh, my God. I see tweets now. Yeah. You never have to watch Ted Lasso. No one has to watch anything. But it was about <laughs> support and openness. Characters embrace each other's quirks and struggles and personalities. The villain of the show would be a person who judged a group of people for finding something that brought joy. Sick. Guys, <laughs> a humorless commitment to quote-unquote positivity is not joyful. It is hostile. And it is also... <laughs> disgusting and it is also stupid you sound so stupid it's a basic joke um like even like comedians defending like this uh this is a little bit hyperbolic we all know where she's coming from it's a fucking joke what are what is the problem (laughs) take the joke Uh, i'm just gonna scroll to a random one and see uh, uh here's somebody first fuck you for using childless as an insult oh that's where you fucking went you couldn't take ted lasso being a little bit of a dopely optimistic show and now you're on childlessness sick people are fucked up let me see what else hold on let me find another one um i didn't realize that ted lasso fans were like the barbs Yes. I mean, uh, in today's episode of White Woman from L.A. has a terrible take she needs to impose on everyone. It's a joke. It's not a take. It's a joke. Do you not understand it's a joke? You watch a show about jokes and now somebody else is making a joke. It's well, just to be fair, Ted Lasso famously does not have jokes. OK. Yeah. Right. Someone says something nice and then everybody smiles and leaves the room, which is now jokes. You know what? I wish I wish people were this fervent about Bill Lawrence's other series, Clone High where are they now i love that show with all the historical figures in the high school yeah i fucking love that series you know uh, did i tell you that it, did i tell you that bill lawrence came for me once did he i i made he, uh, actually i just remembered this right now i made a <laughs> benign comment here it is i said the way people are obsessed with ted lasso's positivity i am obsessed with selena meyer being a complete dick to, to anybody in her path and he responded with can't we have both yes it's a joke. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's like it's like if you don't agree that the show is a beacon of hope, then you're really ruining everybody's buzz. You're so cynical. Guys, criticism it, it means like I, I like brains are working, neurons are firing. It doesn't mean we're not happy. Oh, I find this so upsetting. And anyway, 
the joke is funny and it's being quote tweeted to death by really humorless people who just wanted their nice soccer show never to be criticized ever and it was really fucking weird <laughs> it reminds me of this new wave of um everyone saying just let people enjoy things oh, and here oh. here 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 is my opinion on that yes you should let people enjoy things and i mean that in the sense that i like the movie salt you know back when i was on twitter right sure. if i would tweet about the movie salt it's because i love it and you know that's my personality uh, and some of it's a bit of a joke too if you're a person who feels the need to constantly respond to me why salt sucks then you kind of suck no right, right. that's yeah. what i mean about let people enjoy things this woman isn't in the mentions of people who say they love Ted Lasso being like, it sucks. She made a tweet, a joke about it, and moved on. Right. No, exactly. You shouldn't be badgering one person again and again to like make them feel bad or whatever. But you're telling this person not to express this opinion anywhere in the universe. Like, mind your business. Or keep watching Ted Lasso, since that's the only thing you fucking like on this earth. <laughs> If Ted Lasso is that hopeful, how has it not solved world peace yet? Okay. Right. right. And why is it Brad Goldstein gay? Can, <laughs> that's the real curse. I know. World. Jesus. This is what I wanted to get to. Yeah. Nice. Mm. He likes movies a lot, too. It bothers me. We had him on the show. We loved him. But I don't think that many gay people love Muppets as much as he does. Mm, that's that's true. like a straight man thing. Uh, you know what I will say about the Muppets? People need to appreciate that Miss Piggy is named Miss Piggy because her real name is Miss Piggy Lee, and she was a takeoff on Peggy Lee. I didn't know that. Isn't that really crazy? Piggy Lee? Yeah. Okay. The house down boots. Yes, Piggy Lee. Remember when we tried to cancel Miss Piggy? she's uncancelable. <laughs> she's going to fall down the stairs, molest a frog and move right along. <laughs> where's, where's Piggy and Kermit? Where's that series? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like Bel Air, like the dark version. Yeah. 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 I, I want to see that. I want to see that. <laughs> What's your keep it this week, Ira? My keep it is also about idiots online. Oh, good. So Kanye West's album Donda was supposed to come out. Um, Two twenty-two twenty-two. 22 22 yes that's a lot of twos in a date correct yes uh and but it's also supposed to be released exclusively on stem player his um new music listening device oh i've got it right here i'm kidding <laughs> it did not come out at midnight and fans are in an uproar and let me tell you something <laughs> When has a Kanye West album ever come out on time? Right. You shouldn't set your watch he, he to does it. This, he does this every fucking... The last album, Donda, didn't even come out when it was supposed to. How are you mad? Right. And, and you know why that was late? Because he had to say Donda 65 more times. <laughs> this is one of the wildest things to be bad about. It's, 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 I feel like this is my keep it every week. I, I, I can't talk about Kanye West anymore. No. I, I, keep it to me talking about Kanye. I, I, I can't do it. Unless, unless, you know, like he actually turns into O.J. Simpson and starts stalking Kim Kardashian, which seems like it might happen. Right, right. So, but then we can, we can wait until then. We don't have to do it now. Yeah. Uh, he did just release a list of celebrities he's had beef with. And of course, like, Taylor Swift is on the list. It's like, can you, oh, you're like reigniting old feuds. He's bored. 
Kanye West is bored. He, he is bored. He is bored. It's like, who was thinking about Kanye versus Taylor anymore at this point? If that doesn't make you, I mean, like, I've never had an aneurysm, but I'm sure if I thought about this for five minutes straight, I would get there. I think I could achieve it based on just thinking about that awful pairing. If I could actually remove a celebrity beef from from history, just 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 pluck it out like it never happened, I think it would be Kanye versus Taylor. Mm, you know what I would go I with? I think it's done us more harm than good. I'm gonna go with Chris I'm gonna go with Kirstie Alley and reality because I um miss her seeming like an awesome character actress that I I call her the people's Lauren Bacall. I miss having that energy out in the world. And now she's somebody who's like on Fox News saying, you know, clouds are full of herd immunity or something. I don't know. I wonder if we could trick Kanye into joining Big Brother, like Celebrity Big Brother. They could use that. The best thing Celebrity Big Brother has ever done is keep Todrick locked in a house. <laughs> if they want to say that this season is 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 going to be the first one in the last 20 years, I would love it. Oh my god. Like it turns out it's jail time. Yeah. <laughs> You're just trapped in the Big Brother house and they turn off all the cameras. It's like a Shirley Jackson short story. Yeah. <laughs> Why is everybody gathered in the Times Square? You're in jail. Yeah. yeah. Also, keep it to this season of Celebrity Big Brother. Uh, I, it's a I shame. tried to watch it's a shame. I tried to watch a few episodes and it's it's really abysmal. No. It's a bad cast. It's weird. It, Big Brother sometimes has the problem of not getting people who want to be on the show. And they have this extra problem when it comes to celebrities, since I guess, you know, it's one of the most frustrating human experiences imaginable, let alone experiences <laughs> filmed. So I understand they're up against a wall there. But man, you got to get people who love to play the game. And I seem to see I seem to see celebrities who tweet about Big Brother all the time. So that it feels like it's doable. But well, Chris Kirkpatrick. Um, from NSYNC is in the house or maybe he's gone now at this point but he's a Big Brother super fan mm -hmm. and at this point I'm just like stick him in with the regular players yeah right I right the way they did Lisa Welchel and that cast of Survivor throw in a celebrity yeah because you know what like half of them will remember the him half of them won't it'll be fun yeah you know and they wouldn't get him out first because it'd be like why did you feel like you have to go against Chris Kirkpatrick and get him out first and that's like a gimmick that's not as annoyingly contrived as when they put twins in the house or something. You know, it's just naturally interesting to see who will recognize the celebrity and who won't. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's our show this week. We covered everything. And evil Julia Roberts is my queen. <laughs> uh, favorite Julia Roberts performance. Oh, if I had to pick one. Well, I again, I, I'm very enamored of her evil era. So I want to say August Osage County. But otherwise, I will say... That is an evil film yeah. to exist. <laughs> it's definitely in the <laughs> B minus range. It doesn't make you think obvious. It doesn't make you think Pulitzer winner. Um, I'm... If I had to pick my favorite Julia Roberts performance. I will say Erin Brockovich. Because her monologue capability in that is second to none. Okay. I think I'm still with... My best friend's wedding. Even though she is a hardened sociopath in that movie. And I've never seen someone... That's what I love about it. I want more rom-coms about sociopaths. Because you know what? Most people are sociopathic in love. Like, most people are crazy in, like, romances. And the character that she plays in that film is someone who is generally played for, like laughs and you're rooting for them in rom-coms like like i gotta get back with this person that i lost years ago and it's like to everyone else in that story you are a crazy interloper 
Yeah, right, right, right. I just miss also the device in a movie of, I have to break into a computer. Mm. So silly. <laughs> I, I, I need to get that disc. Yeah. But also, yeah, she hasn't really made a film that I love um, in years. No, so. I did enjoy her on Homecoming, a show that was extremely dreary. But yeah. All right. Thanks to Marlon James for joining us. We will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware.